0: Good morning. morning. Talk a little better? Open up your Bibles with me, 1 Samuel, chapter 12. We are in a series on the kings of Israel, a sub-series on the life of David. We're spending a couple months going through King David's life. If you don't know who King David is, he is next to Jesus, the greatest king of Israel. And uh, David, so far, he's been the hero of every single story until last week. Um, man, what a heavy experience um, it was for David to do what he did. Um, I know at times we're sitting there, we're reading it, and we want to reach through the pages of scripture, strangle him, maybe hit him in the face, take him out. Um, anybody else feel like that? Am I the only one who wants to just arm wrestle David to the ground and say, brother, what are you doing? And we ended with David having um, uh, an adulterous relationship with a woman obviously that was not his wife ended up lying about it and killing her husband um, deceiving manipulation i mean you name it i think david um, broke six of the ten commandments and if he had slept with bathsheba on a saturday he would have been seven by breaking the sabbath um, i mean he just went to town um, on breaking the law and what we found is that David was about to enter into an extended period of, season, uh, uh, extended period of time where he would be hiding his sin. And um, ra- raise your hands with me. How many of you have a secret sin you've never told anybody about? Don't raise your hands. I'm just kidding. That's <laughs> Some of you got really, really, really nervous. I'd like to confess a couple secret sins that honestly not too many people know about me. Um, when I was in high school, um, I went to a Hanson concert. You remember the song Oom Anybody? Even if you don't know who Hanson is, you should know the song Oom I know. I'm getting looks of judgment. I'm telling you, I just... I wanted to go. That was the problem. And it was a great concert. Okay, seg- second confession. Um, I have owned almost every single Backstreet Boys album. <laughs> <laughs> judgment. Judgment. Peter Lewis, I will tell about your music listening habits. You be quiet. So third confession, if you know me, if you don't know me, take me out to dinner. I would love to tell you the story about this. I've been praying secretly for one person to come to the village church for a long time. A cobbler. Because I have a boot company that I have been waiting to launch and it is, I mean, I have an entire marketing campaign ready to go for this boot company. And, uh, and, I, and I don't tell people that often, right? But secretly, I had a person come up to me this morning, and they said, hey, literally, they had no idea I was going to talk about this. They said, when are you going to start your boot company? Because I need a new pair of boots. Not kidding. Um, so if you ever want to hear about my, the name of my boot company, it's really embarrassing. I'm not going to go that far. Um, but you know what? If I, were to, if I were to say to some of you, hey, what are some of the things that you just don't want anybody to find out? Uh, Let's dig a little bit deeper. I want you to imagine your um, spouse or your parents come up to you in the morning, and they say this. um, Tonight, when you get home, I want to have a serious conversation, and I want to ask you a question. And here's what I want to ask you. What is the one question that you do not want them to ask you? What's the one question you don't want them to ask you? When I was 19, Uh, I was uh, at Michigan State University, I was a freshman, and I had a roommate who was an awesome, awesome guy who wasn't a believer. And uh, I prayed that this guy would come to trust in Jesus. That was my prayer. And uh, I want to go back in time with you because I think sometimes uh, we can forget what computer technology was like in 1999. Um, You didn't really have cell phones like we do now, right? The internet, how many of you had dial-up, right? So, like, the internet was very slow, and when I went to Michigan State, they had this thing called the Ethernet. I mean, the Ethernet was like flying, and you plug this big, huge cable into the wall, and, and they had just gotten over all the campus, and we were just, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And so, when I grew up, the days of accessing any kind of pornography um, via dial-up um, wasn't really a huge thing like it is now. Now you have uh, access to information just lickety-split. It wasn't like that then. We had these big computers, right, that I had to take with me every time I went College, right? Every year, everywhere I go, it was a huge computer plus the um, what do you call that big box that makes it run? No, no, no. The you put the disk drive in there, right? The tower or whatever. Then you had speakers. Then you had your keep. I mean, it was just a mess. I could take up like my whole back seat just transporting. So just to like bring you back in time a little bit, uh, I can't remember all the names. I just know that now I have a laptop and it goes everywhere and it's really little. Um, And so I. I had went to um, my roommate's computer because mine just wasn't working, I couldn't figure it out. It was a Windows ma- it was a Windows PC, so just ridiculous. So, so I went to the computer and uh, I was curious because pornography was everywhere and I typed in two U- URLs I know now, www dot, you fill in the blank. And uh, it was really slow because even the fastest internet then was slow and I felt guilty and I shut it down and, and walked away. I had never heard of this thing um, called a browser history, okay? And you know when you, you just type it in, like the, the last three websites gone to come like right up? You know that feeling, right? I, I didn't know. I, I was an imbecile. So um, he comes in the room uh, that night and he says, um, Hey, can you look at this? Yeah, what's going on? Did you look at these websites on my computer? No. You know, there were some guys in here earlier. I mean, I just BS'd. I mean, I was like, I was just... Like, no, 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 no. I just made this whole story, wasn't it, you know? And I guilty, 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 right? So a year goes by, and you know when you go to pray, and it's like sometimes you can just shut down that secret sin for a while. You can just push it away, and you push it away, and you push it away, and then every month, every month or two, it comes up when you're praying, and the Lord's like, hey, Michael, remember when you lied Um, to your friend. But God, if I tell him, he won't trust in Christ. If I tell him, I'll make a mockery uh, of my witness to Jesus. If I tell him, he won't forgive me. If I tell him, and all of the excuses were just going through my mind, and going through my mind. So a whole year goes by, and in this year, it was a great year, um, but every time I prayed, this was just on my mind, right? Nobody in this room has ever experienced that, like, thing, like, you know the Holy Spirit is saying, you need to make this right. You need to make this right. So I am driving a year later. I'm going to Colorado. I left Michigan State. Him and I had parted ways. And uh, I find myself on a five-day car ride to Colorado. Why did it take that long? Just did. So... I, in this whole ride, the Holy Spirit is doing a work on me. And uh, there were three lies that I had told to people that I just could not get off my conscience. And this was the main one. This was the big one. Now, I got to um, this girl's house, and I called him up. We'd, again, we didn't have cell phones, and I sent him an email. We set up this whole time to actually call. I remember when you couldn't text people, you actually had to set up meetings, right? And uh, I called him, and I told him, and he said, Bro, I totally forgot about that. Forgiven. Like, that's not even a big deal. Are you kidding me? Well, thanks. I mean, I appreciate you telling me, but, like, that's fine. People make mistakes. People people are human. For a year, this thing petrified me. I didn't want to do anything about it. And then here's what I found. um, That when I obeyed the prompting of the Holy Spirit to confess, it was like a billion pounds had been lifted off of my chest. And I was so ashamed. I was so embarrassed. And in my confession to my non-Christian friend, um, he showed me a level of grace and mercy and safety that honestly um, has held me back in the past from confessing swiftly to Christians. You understand what I'm saying by that, right? That sometimes non-Christians can be quicker to give grace and mercy and understanding than Christians can. And I think, I'm pretty positive, we have a bunch of people in the room here and when I say to you, what is the one question you do not want your spouse or your parents or your pastor to ask you, you know exactly what that question is. I mean, it is on the forefront of your mind. And uh, some of you are going to say, thanks, Mike, for making me feel terrible this morning. It is absolutely my pleasure. I consider it an honor to, to help you do that. Um, but I have, I have found out that most people, number one, have secret sins. Um, we are some of the most secretive people and it's often because we are continually trying to portray a level of holiness that we actually do not have. Can I get an amen from somebody in this room? Nobody, right? Okay, good. Um, I've also found myself being in a pastoral position that two things have happened very frequently with me. Um, Either someone will come to me and confess a secret sin that has been burdening burdening them for a very long time, or I will end up catching them. And so there are actually a number of you in this room where we have had these sacred moments. And uh, there was um, one friend uh, a while back where, uh, again, you would never know this person ever in a million years, but um, he came to me and he poured out his heart. And from the time he was six years old, he had been addicted to pornography. His dad and his brothers immersed him in this world. It was his secret life. It was his shame. He came to Christ at a young age, and uh, he knew the two weren't compatible, but um, as a young kid, I mean, this affected his brain and the way he thinks, his addiction, the way he perceives himself, the way he perceives women, and and so he almost had to separate himself into two different people. There's this person, and then there's this person. There's the um, secret life of myself, and then there's the real life, the life that people see and know, and in his late 20s, he comes into my office wailing and pouring out his heart, And uh, I knew exactly what it was, although I didn't know the extent of it. And so he said, I need to tell my wife. I'd love to have that conversation. And we invited both of them to our house. And in a moment of weeping, of confession, of years and years and years from childhood of a secret pornographic addiction, I mean, this husband poured out his soul before this beautiful woman. And she just looks at him, and she hugs him, and she puts her arms around him. One of the sweetest moments I've ever seen. And there's this phrase that we say all the time, and and I want you to catch it. There is no shame in repentance. There's no shame in repentance. I think we sometimes expect that people are better than they are, more holy than they are, more righteous than they are. We expect more of them, not realizing that the gospel declares over our spouse and our kids and our parents that they are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God and in part from the gospel of Jesus Christ working for a long time over the period of their life that redemption does not happen. And when it does happen, it is slow. It is progressive. This is why Christians don't believe that we can become perfect, but we believe that um, sin takes a long time to overcome, and until the day we die, we're infected with this virus, and it affects the way we think and the way we feel. And even sometimes the smartest, godliest people carry these secrets with them for years and years and years. And we're blown away when they tell us. And I think there's this part of our brain where we got to just step back and say, you know what? I have high hopes. I have high hopes for Um, the godliness of my children, or my parents, or my spouse, or my friends. But you know what? Every once in a while, there are these secrets that we just carry with us, and they steal our joy and our soul. And the one main reason we don't confess is we're either prideful or we're afraid. We're prideful or we're afraid. And usually it's a combination of both. I don't know about you, but... I tend to think that if somebody that I loved came to me and confessed a secret sin, I tend to think that I would respond really, really well, right? Don't most of you think, oh man, if somebody came to me and confessed, like I'd respond well. But the reality is I think people are afraid that you won't or that I won't, and so they don't. And we live and we go on and on with the cycle. And the Spirit every once in a while brings up this secret sin and says, you ready to tell it yet? You ready to come to me with it? You ready to come to the person that you're sinning against with it? And <clears throat> I've learned a principle, and it's this: that sin grows in the dark. Sin grows in the dark. That's what it does. It loves the dark. It loves silence. It loves isolation. It loves not being exposed, because what's in the dark, it grows and it festers and it gets roots and it takes control and it starts c- stealing life and joy. And you know what the greatest enemy to sin is light. Exposing light on sin kills it. it kills it. It's amazing. Somebody said once, I love this, the greatest enemy to the darkness of sin is the light of confession. The greatest enemy to the darkness of sin inside of us is the light of confession. Now, I've got good news for you. You have two options. Many of you in this room have that secret thing that is in your brain, it's there. Uh, Many of you have actually had it and you've gotten rid of it and you have this peace that is profound and unbelievable, okay? Um, But there are two options if you're the one in here with a secret sin. You will either be exposed or you will confess. There's no other options. You will be exposed or you will confess. Can I just tell you? There's no shame in confession, but there's an incredible amount of guilt and shame experienced when we're exposed. It's hard. If I could look at everybody in this room and say, it's so much better to say it now than it is to let the sin grow in the darkness and fester. And one of the things I've just come to grips with, because I have been let down by many, many people I love and respect, is that God has tried to show me that even godly people who you respect can make big mistakes. And it doesn't mean that they need to lose your respect or your appreciation or your admiration. In fact, when people that I respect mess up and confess it, do you know what happens in my heart toward them? My respect goes up. Because the courage that it takes to submit to a moving of the Holy Spirit, to put yourself in such a vulnerable position, there are very few times that I can think of when somebody confessed to me and my trust in them, my respect for them, did not go up. I mean, it's a profound, profound thing that happens. And a couple passages of Scripture. David obviously knows what it's like to live with unconfessed sin. Here's what he says. If we had forgotten the name of our God, which is not possible, and spread out our tent, our hands to a foreign God. Let's say I just totally forgot about Jesus and I worship a foreign God. Here's what he says. Would God not have discovered it since he knows the secrets of the heart? Solomon uh, writes in Ecclesiastes. He's seen his father David. He's heard the legacy of what happened with David and Bathsheba. Uh, and he writes this and he goes, for God will bring every deed into judgment which means that every single deed ever done will be exposed publicly for all to see and he will judge it for what it is he says this with every secret thing so it's not just the things you've done it's the secret places of our heart they're going to be exposed and here is what he says whether they're good or whether they're evil so now let's go back to this every secret that you have will either be confessed or will be exposed which is better? You can say it. Confession. Every time. So David covers up with Uriah, Bathsheba, impregnates her, and he is living, it seems to be like nine plus months hiding this. Now I want you to go with me to 2 Samuel. Actually, go to the last verse in chapter 11. and I want you to listen to the summary. The Lord has been left out completely out of all of chapter 11 until the final verse. Now that I have you all just a little uncomfortable, right? This is, it's a good place to be when you're in a sermon. It says this, but the thing, all of the events of chapter 11, the cheating, the manipulation, the deception, the murder, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. As if we should be um, surprised by that in any way, but here's the point. Despite the fact that in David's mind, in those moments, he is not concerned about God considering God confessing to God who is observing and watching and discerning every event of David's life and his heart God is like David missed something really important God is very aware you know this omniscience thing it means that he knows all things in all places at all times he knows all things that could be would be should be and are there is nothing hidden from the eyes of God in any way shape or form and so FYI you may have a secret sin in this room and you've never gone to the Lord with it, guess what? He knows everything. He knows every motive. He even knows the things you don't know that you're supposed to know. The things that motivated you that you might not be aware of, he knows. Your real intentions, the outcome, all of the disastrous effects of your sin on other people, you may not even be aware of. All the things that could have been, had the sin not oppressed you for so long, um, all of the things that could have been, he knows what could have been. He knows the good things you might have done had you not had this sin over your head uh, 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 and darkness growing inside of you. He knows. He knows everything there is to know, and the Lord watches and he observes, and and this is one of the points that the narrator wants you to understand is just because the Lord is absent from David's mind and heart does not mean the Lord is disengaged. Just because the Lord steps back for a season and observes and does not immediately intervene doesn't mean he doesn't care. In fact, sometimes the Lord just waits. And he waits. And what we know from reading Psalm 32 is that the Holy Spirit of God was pressing on David in this season. The Holy Spirit was pushing on him and, and his bones were drying up and he was tired spiritually all the time. Read Psalm 32 sometime. We touched on it last week, but it's an amazing account of what happens in this season. And then chapter 12, verse 1, and I just love this. Um, there's a nuance here that if you miss this, you'll miss something beautiful. It says this, The Lord sent Nathan To David. Now, in all of Saul's disobedience, did the Lord, um, when he he removed the Holy Spirit from him, send anybody to Saul? No, he just let him go. Can I tell you that one of the most scary, dangerous places to be is in a place of sin where the Lord just says, nope, reap what you sow. I'm out of this. I'm completely out of this. But that's not what the Lord does with David. The Lord is observing, and at just the right time, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Who's taking the initiative in this relationship? lord i mean should david have confessed to the lord should david have come clean should david have made all of this stuff right he should have but you know what the lord sometimes knows because he knows everything that you and i will just not respond we will not confess we will not take the action necessary and catch this if you're his kid he will expose you i want you to write this down because i want you to get the point a few words god will take you out publicly to get you back privately. God will take you out publicly to get you back privately. So the Lord sends Nathan to David, says this, he came to him and he said to him, now this is awesome. I'll tell you why this is awesome. Because isn't the Lord so even merciful in the way he confronts us sometimes? I mean the lord could have confronted and humiliated and shamed david in so many ways and, and i want you to just see the skill of the lord in confronting and exposing our sin here's what he does nathan comes to david and he says um there were two men in a certain city david now i want you to know this david thinks this is a real thing david thinks that nathan is coming to him for political or spiritual advice okay so there are two men in a certain city one rich and the other poor the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. Little means little, ewe means female. Okay, so we got gender down, which he had bought. And he brought it up. And it grew up with him, with his children, like how kind of we think of dogs. And at this point, um, David's like, oh, there's this rich man, and there's this little ewe lamb, and this is cute, and it's like his buddy, and he's drawing him in. He used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup, different times, and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now we're going to have a little pop quiz. Who is the rich man? King David, right? So David is the rich man. Who is the poor man? Uriah. Uriah was Bathsheba's husband. David killed um, Uriah. Okay, we got that. So um, who was the little ewe lamb? Bathsheba. It's interesting because um, commentators have made a great point on this, um, that they most likely think Bathsheba was very young, probably a teenager, because she was clearly fertile, had not had any kids yet with um, Uriah, and he refers to her here, here as a little ewe lamb, like meaning that this is a very young, precious thing. So just interesting for you to think about. Now, I want to ask you this. So you look at no- verse number two, it starts off and it says, The rich man had very many flocks and herds. Who are these? It's David's harem. David has this extensive um, group of women that are at his, um, every whim, available for him to have sex with whenever he wants. And so is David lacking a beautiful woman in his life? No, in fact, he has many, many beautiful women in his life. In fact, I don't have a good answer for you in this, but verse 8, if you look down there with me, um, the Lord is telling David about all the things he's done for him, and, and he says this, I gave you your master's house. Who is his master? Saul. And your master's wives into your arms. And so Saul had this huge harem. And when David took over the kingdom, he inherited all of Saul's many, many wives. It doesn't make any sense to me why the Lord would do this other than to test David. uh, But here's what we know, that probably the many flocks are David's harem. Who is the traveler? So, Jewish rabbis for years uh, uh, have mostly concluded one thing, and I think this is really interesting, that the traveler is sin. And the traveler does two things in this, and I want you to notice it. Um, He goes from being somebody who's traveling around, but then he goes from being the traveler to the guest. And so what happens here is that David has this experience that the traveler comes around, but David doesn't need to bring the traveler into his home, this lust, the sin that's going to corrupt him and destroy him. But there's a point that comes that, but this traveler, at one point in the story, we don't know all the details in between, but the traveler actually becomes a guest in the home. And so what we find here is that David has taken this traveler, brought him into his home, let him take up residence. And when the traveler of sin comes up and takes residence in your home, does he want to destroy you? Absolutely. He has no regard for you. He has no regard for your wife, no regard for your husband, or your family, or your kids, or your job, or your friends. As soon as you give him residence, his goal is to destroy you, which is why secret sins are so powerful. Because it is the traveler who takes up residence in your heart and in your mind and steals the life and spiritual energy out of you. Verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. I love this. Like David is legitimately angry because should David be angry at anybody who would ever do such a thing? Answer is absolutely. Isn't it easier to see our own sin in other people? right? Isn't it so much easier to get angry at their sin, to be passionate about their sin, when that same very sin in our own hearts and lives, we give ourselves mercy and mercy and mercy, and then we cast judgment and shame and condemnation onto other people. And I think some of the time that we we get so heated about other people's sin is, is because it's so much easier. It's like looking in a mirror, and we're casting the judgment on them. It's profound what we do. But here, David, is angered and it says this and he said to nathan as the lord lives the man who has done this deserves to die now not technically under the law but just he understands the spirit and the nastiness of this man's character but then he gets to the law and says and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity i want you to catch this Um, god will take you out publicly to get you back privately. And not only do we see that the Lord is exposing David's sin, now I want you to watch this. The Lord is going to enter in. He's going to expose this, and then he's going to discipline him, and this is going to be a very beautiful thing to, to watch. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. I, I don't know how he said it. I don't know if he said, David, you're, you're the man. I don't know if he said it with this air of judgment, like, David, you're the man. I think sometimes that we think the prophets are all angry and mean. Um, I don't think it's ever easy for a prophet to go, have to go up to the king of Israel in behalf of God and say such hard and difficult things. Here's what I want you to understand about the prophet. I want you to understand about the person who might have to confront you one day and expose you one day. I, I don't know anybody who loves to expose people's dark sins. I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody who takes great pleasure out of seeing people that they love fall. I I don't. I tend to think when I'm I'm reading about Nathan that Nathan is a man who is asked to do an incredibly difficult job to approach uh, a king who can be very scary in these moments. We don't know what he's capable of. We already know he's capable of murder. Um, Is he turning into King Saul? We just don't know. But um, here's what I want you to understand. that I think Nathan here is having a really hard time uh, I cannot imagine that this was easy for him. I want to read to you a passage from Hebrews chapter 12. These are verses 5 to 10. I think this is awesome. Um, here's what it says. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. So if the Lord is disciplining you, is this something you should, you should consider lightly? No, you don't treat this lightly. You take this seriously nor be weary when reproved by him. So when he disciplines you and he comes in and he executes justice or judgment or discipline or puts you in a spiritual timeout, if you will, don't get weary, don't get exhausted, don't look at him and just be like, I can't believe you did this to me because after all, who did this to you? You did, I did. And then here's what it says. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son of God he receives. Let me me just put it this way. If you have a son or a daughter and you don't discipline them, you're a terrible mom and dad. I love you, but you're terrible, okay? Uh, no, uh, No son or daughter will grow up to respect a mom or dad who has no boundaries and no discipline. And a good mom and dad, you know what they do? They draw boundaries. They discipline. And why do they discipline? Because you love your son or your daughter. You know this, right? You know that if you permit your child to speak to you with disrespectful tones at age two, three, four, and five, what will they do to you when they're seniors in high school? They will devastate you and destroy you with their words. You know that. You calculate the risk. So you do the hard thing now to protect them later. You enter into these things now so they don't grow and accumulate and make a very ugly, terrible human being. And that's what discipline does. It creates boundaries around children now, so that later um, they don't give themselves over to the sin that's inside of them. And so this is what God does. Every dad or mom who loves their son or daughter disciplines them. And you do that differently with every kid. Does it mean you abuse them? Say no. It's not what we're talking about. So if your brain goes there, you're not listening. Number seven. It is for discipline that you have to endure. This discipline is a good thing. By being disciplined, you learn discipline or control over your life to live the way you should. God is treating you as sons. So if, 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 if God comes to you and he exposes you and then disciplines you, I've got awesome news for you. God loves you and thinks of you as a son or a daughter, right, isn't that cool? I don't go discipline kids who aren't mine. Do you know why? I don't love them like I love my sons or daughters. You know what I do to my kids? I discipline them regularly so that I can help them become the little men and little women, or one day big men and big women, that they are called by God to be, right? And so if you get disciplined, I just have awesome news for you. If the Lord intervenes and exposes you, you, you he loves you. That's so cool. I know that's hard to feel, but it's really actually great. If you are left without discipline— in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If God doesn't intervene, catch this, you're not a son or daughter. So if the Lord for 20 or 30 years has just stepped away and let you live your secret lifestyle, that's actually a really scary thing. It's very scary because God disciplines his sons and his daughters. He keeps going. Verse 9, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Amen? You can say amen. Some of you shouldn't, but. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits, of the spiritual realm, and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. Not perfect, but they tried their best. But he disciplines us for our good. Catch this. Why does all of this happen? So that we may share in his holiness. What does God want for you most? For people to respect you? For people to think you're godly? Does he want for you a job more than anything else? God will take you out publicly to get you back privately. God will chasten you outwardly to transform you inwardly. God will not hesitate to chasten you outwardly to transform you inwardly. So I want to come back to the secret that you're holding in your heart. And I just, with all the love I can muster up and say, if you're a son, if you're a daughter, God loves you so much. And he desires your holiness. He desires for your Christ-likeness. He does not desire for you to live in the prison of sin that is taking you over. He does not desire any of this for you. And he will, in the right time, in the right place, gently, purposely, measurably expose you. Why? Why? He wants you to be more like Christ. There is not one mean bone in God's body toward you when he exposes you and disciplines you. It is a loving dad who intervenes and says, you're mine, and I want what's best for you. And I'll tell you, every time I've been exposed, whether it's by my parents or my own stupidity or somebody catching me, when I look back on that, I am grateful. In the middle of it, I'm frustrated. Amen, somebody? You can respond, right? Amen. Three hard facts about willful disobedience starts in verse 7. The first one is willful disobedience reveals a lack of gratitude toward God. Once we get to this point, the gratitude that should fill up the believer is on its way out or gone. And Here's what God says. Thus says the Lord, he's talking to David, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. <clears throat> And I delivered you out of the hands of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. All of these things should never have happened. You should have been a little shepherd, son of Jesse, living in Bethlehem for the rest of your life. I pulled you out. Not only that, but I saved you from Saul. I saved you from Goliath, from the Ammonites, from the Philistines. I took two kingdoms of Israel and Judah, brought them uh, together under your leadership, an impossible thing. But I did this for you. I've given you everything you can possibly imagine. And then he says this, And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. I would have done more for you. I would have given you more because if I trust you, I'm going to give you more responsibility. And at this point... God is looking at David and saying, you've lost gratitude and perspective for everything I've done for you. And that's one of the hard realities that when we find ourselves willingly sinning, doing something regularly that we know is against God's will and against God's word, it's because we have lost our gratitude for what he has done for us. Number two, willful disobedience is an act of despising God or contempt. He says this, why have you despised the word of the Lord? Now, when you look at somebody else and you see them willfully do what they know God hates and then cover it up, would you call that despising in someone else? Yeah. What would you call it in your own heart? Most of us don't look in those moments and say, right now, I'm making a willful decision to despise Jesus Christ. to to pour contempt on him. And I I think one of the the reasons that God gives us stories like this in the Bible is because it's hard to look at our own sin and rightly evaluate, but sometimes we can look at David's sin, we can look at other people's sin, and we can say, yeah, that wasn't good. (laughs) That was actually despising. That was actually terrible. And now we have to flip the mirror, look at ourselves, and say, that's actually, that's actually me. I when I do that, I despise the Lord. Why have you despised the word of the Lord, verse 9, uh, to do what is evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have now taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Sometimes it just takes somebody saying our sin back to us for us to understand the weight of what it is that we've done. I think about guys with pornography who are addicted to it, and I say, you, you have objectified someone's beautiful and lovely daughter or future wife. You have taken them and you've used them for your own purposeful gains. You're adding to the sex slave industry. You are uh, adding to a billion dollar industry that is causing little boys and little girls all over the world to be taken from their families and abused and sexually molested. You're adding to this industry. Sometimes it just takes someone looking at you and saying, can we just paint a picture for what's really happening here? If there were no market, there would be no product, right? And so now we look at people and we say, here's what's really going on. Hey, when you lied to your mom and your dad, can I just be straight with you for a moment, right? Um, you despise them, you dishonored them, okay? You, you, you treated them terribly, um, you broke trust with them. I mean, you just call things for what they are sometimes, and that sometimes that's what we need, but here's the deal. The Lord doesn't, he doesn't mince words. He wants to call it as it is, because sometimes we're the last people to call it what it really is. Willful disobedience incites God to discipline. Now, therefore— at this point, I wonder if David's thinking he's going to kill me. Like, this is where it's all coming to, to pass. The sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And the rest of this book is going to show us how this plays out. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel... And before the sun, i we going to come back to this word. God will chasten you outwardly to transform you inwardly. Will David ever forget the lesson he's learning here? Never. And if David repeats it, shame on David. <laughs> finally, not finally, number three, the Lord forgives his children. The Lord will forgive you fully, so nothing stands between you relationally. The Lord will forgive you fully, so nothing stands between you relationally. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. You imagine at this point, David is like, oh, thank. Because David, Bathsheba, all of them deserve to die. Everybody. This should have been uh, an execution of the entire administration, and a new administration should have come up. And God can execute justice when he wants, mercy when he wants, grace when he wants. He's God. He has that uh, privilege. And he looks at him and says, you're not going to die. And at this point, David is like, you mean we're okay? Like, you and me, were okay. I get the fact that there's going to be consequences because that's the reality of sin, is that there's consequences. But at the end of the day, David steps back and says, so you and me, we're okay. Like, you love me still. Like, this is not um, compromise our relationship. Like, I like, am still your son. Your spirit is still within me. Um, this whole thing isn't over. I can still come to you and pray to you and talk to you. And he's like, yeah. And this is lesson number one for all of us. If God can forgive a murder, deceiving, adulteress, David, I don't care what you've done, he can forgive you. That's what you say. Amen? Amen. Amen. And we look at this and I'm just like, oh, like, this is like looking in the mirror. God, you still love me despite what I have done? That's the power of the blood of Christ. David wrote a, a psalm and I encourage you to go read it. Psalm 51. Um, beautiful psalm that he wrote after this happened. I just want to read it for you and then uh, we'll get to the last point. Have... Mercy on me, O God, according to your has said, your steadfast love, your faithful love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Any excuses here? None. Any, but, but you don't understand what she did. But, but if you were in my shoes, there's no buts. This is just straight up, I have sinned. No one is responsible but me. I am my greatest enemy. I am the problem here. Yes, a billion people could have done things a billion times differently, but I still did what I did because it's in me. It's my problem. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Catch this, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He steps back, and he looks at all of the consequences of his sin, and David himself says, this is just. You are blameless. Uh, Whatever happens in my family and to my life, um, it is mercy because I deserve death, and anything less than death is mercy. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Ever since I was a a baby, this inclination has been inside of me. It's a part of my DNA. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Like you're concerned with my holiness and my character. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Is God concerned about the secrets and about the, the heart and the things that we're not telling everybody and the things that we're hiding? Intimately concerned with this. He is passionate about this purge me with his stuff do whatever you need to do and i shall be clean wash me and i shall be whiter than snow let me hear joy and gladness let the bones that you have broken rejoice hide your face from my sin and blot out my all my iniquities you want to talk about a confession that's confession like this whole i'm sorry if i hurt you that's not confession oh i probably should know better sorry this is confession when you have been hiding in secret for years and years and years. This is not just a, I'm driving and I'm talking in my head and for four seconds and it's done, I walk away. This is a moment where, it's a holy moment where you need to stop, you need to get away, you need to be private, you need to be alone, you need to get on your face before God and pour out your heart. Somehow you need to feel the weight of your sin and as long as you're in the presence of someone else, I typically don't believe that that is possible. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Anyone want that? Oh God, renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. I love this. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. I'll take this secrets life of mine. I'll receive your forgiveness and now I will train others to do the same thing. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. At the end of this verse 17, it says, the sacrifices of God, what he wants from you is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I want to come back to the line from the beginning of point three. The Lord will forgive you fully, so nothing stands between you and him relationally. And let's read this. How do I respond? And I just want to close with this final worship. Verse 15, the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And therefore, saw, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. I mean, do you hear his pain? And the elders of his house stood beside him, just like dudes, don't know what to do. We just kind of stand there everybody To raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat with food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. Now then can we say to him, the child is dead. He may do harm, do himself some harm. But when David saw that the servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Catch verse 20. Then David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. He went into the house of God, and what did he do? He worshiped. He then went down to his house, and he was asked, They set food before him, and he ate. And servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and you ate food. And now you're worshiping. What's going on here? And and I love this. That the heart after God, when they're exposed and disciplined and forgiven, even in the aftermath of their sin, what do they do? They worship. How you respond in your discipline speaks volume. And it confuses everyone around you because you know what? When I know the Lord's disciplining me, the last thing I want to do sometimes is publicly worship. And yet for David, he steps back and he says, this this is the response. Because you know what David has received? Mercy when he deserved justice. Forgiveness when he deserved hell. Relationship with God when he deserved distance. I mean, David has received so much. And again, he's reminded God is good, and even his discipline is for my good. David says, verse 22, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. I want to answer one question. Why does God go to such extreme measures to expose our unrepentant secret sin? Number one, because he loves you, truly. Any mom or dad, if you had a son or daughter with a secret and it was destroying them, would you not do anything possible to get them whole again? If you had a son or daughter with an addiction, if you had a son or daughter with a problem, would you not Do everything in your power you could to help them. And what motivates you? Love. And and I want to come back to this. If the Lord disciplines you, you just need to take this moment and say, I am a son or daughter, and you love me. Number two, he wants you to be happy. Like the present heartache produces future joy. At every moment, God wants your joy. And then finally, number three, I think this is just a reality check. This is what we agreed to when we trusted in Christ. <laughs> I don't know if you know that, but like, I, I agreed. Jesus, give me your Holy Spirit and do whatever it takes to make me holy, despite me. It's part of the deal. And that's why some of us should really count the cost before we trust in Christ. Because he loves you so much and he wants your joy so much that when you came to him, you and him agreed together that he could do whatever he wants to make you holy. And he knows best. Amen? I want to pray. We're going to close in worship one song, and uh, this is an opportunity to lift our voices up to God. And I want to just avail to each of you, um, if there's somebody you need to talk to, I think sometimes this process of um, talking with somebody is just so helpful, whether it's myself or someone else. There are a group of people who I know would love to just sit with you in complete privacy, serve you, and listen to you and uh, pray with you. So if that's something you would love, just come talk to me and say, I need to talk to somebody, and you, I'll help you find someone. Sound good? All right. Father, thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for exposing us. Thank you for disciplining us. Um, we deserve hell. We deserve justice. But you just pour out mercy and grace, and mercy and grace, and mercy and grace. And, and so God, what better way to respond right now than to just worship the name of Jesus? God, as we sing, uh, may your Holy Spirit do in hearts what only you can do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.